This is Extraordinary, a podcast brought to you by Independence Australia, where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. You'll hear about the unique challenges we encounter, the funny situations we face, and learn what it's like to be in our shoes. I'm your host, Oliver Hunter. I'm a stand-up comedian who actually can't stand up, and I've been cracking jokes about living with a disability for years. Today, we're back chatting with Laura Petanuzzo, a writer, speaker, and passionate advocate for mental health and disability access. In today's episode, you'll hear about what drew Laura in to the world of disability, as well as her insights into the power of language, both as a weapon and as a tool. Plus the importance of understanding how mental health and physical disabilities can affect one another. Let's jump in. So the work you do with the advocacy organisation, Women with Disability Victoria, is that correct? Yes. So I work with them currently. And the one where I first was like, yes, I'm disabled. That was Youth Disability Advocacy Service. So YDAS. Okay. Well, we might go back because I I have heard of YDAS. And you said that was where you first embraced your disability and really started to understand it. When you first went for that job at YDAS, we'll start from there. And you've already touched on, I guess, that you're not disabled enough. What do you think drew you to that world when you had that attitude at the beginning? For one thing, the job was around like resource development and writing and using lived experience. So I also have psychosocial disability or mental illness. And so I did have a lot of experience of kind of talking about my lived experience of that and writing and resource development for different organizations in that regard. There was always something in me that was a little bit curious. And there was some part of me that was like, no, I do have a disability because there were some times when I couldn't avoid it. Like when I went for a driving test, I had cerebral palsy because at the time I could drive. So it's very much kind of been in the periphery of my life. Also, because I walk with quite a noticeable limp when I do walk. And often people will say to me, they mean well, but they'll just be like, you know, what happened to your leg or what happened to your foot? So I'm kind of used to acknowledging that I had CP. So there was on some level, I was kind of like, I'm kind of a part of this community, but just kind of not really. And so when I saw the job, I thought, oh, maybe I could actually belong. And maybe this part of myself that I've so often thought of as a limitation, as a deficit, could actually be my greatest strength. Yeah, I couldn't agree more there too. I just had a conversation recently where I said I realized for my career and like the pathway I want to go down professionally and personally, for when I was younger, and I think we have a similar experience here, when I was younger, I wanted to not fight my disability because I was accepting of it, but for my professional career, they were like, oh, I want nothing to do with the disability community or disability space. I want a normal job. I just want to be in an office with people or to do whatever that job is, but I don't want to acknowledge my disability as part of that job. Like I need accessible facilities because I want to be like everyone else. That comes back to that point of we want to be like everyone else. We do, but we're also not at the same time. So it's finding that balance and that acceptance that if you have a disability or CP, you're not like everyone else, but you just want the same opportunities. But for me, that equated to not acknowledging my disability within a professional space But for me, and then I realized, oh, actually, no, I feel like the best way for me, for my career to progress and for me to have an impact is actually to lean in to my disability and follow the path that we're 
my disability almost becomes like a focal point of my career. So some of the consulting work that I've done, it's the work I do now, will continue to do. So I think, yeah, it's a good point. I think, and you've already touched on it too. It's just, yeah, that embracing. And for me, it's just a bit, it was a real relief and just, oh, this is what I'm meant to do. And this is how I'm going to do it. And I might still have its moments where you run into the odd roadblock, but I feel like we're similar in that we just go, all right, well, what's another way around this roadblock or how do we fight through this? Or I'm not sort of hiding away from it anymore or trying to bend my back too much to go, oh, I can do it this way then. No, this is how I'm going to do it and take it or leave it kind of thing. Yes, definitely. Before I had this job in disability, the two jobs that I had prior to that, you had to climb a set of stairs in order to get into the office. And I'm very shy, so I don't often speak up. And so I wouldn't say anything. I would just be like, okay, Laura, like it's time to start the day. It's time to climb the stairs. And I knew that climbing those stairs would leave me in pain and exhausted. But I was like, you know what? You just have to do it. Everyone else climbs the stairs. Whereas now, if I'm even going for a job, I will say like no stairs, like I require wheelchair access. And I think that's been a big shift. And also, I guess, jumping back to that idea of that sense of relief. And I remind myself, if I am ever feeling doubt about my place in the disability community, I was born for this, quite literally. The way that I was born, it's meant that I will always have a place and a space amongst people who get it. Yeah, I think that's another key point. People who get it, because I think empathy and understanding is a terms that get thrown around quite a bit these days and can become quite watered down terms. So I think empathy in its true sense is people that get it and embracing people around you that have disabilities or have CP. Like I think when I was younger, I didn't really know people with disabilities or know people with CP being from a smaller town, regional area. And even if I did meet people with disabilities or CP, I was like, ah, oh, I almost struggled to connect in a weird way because I think I was clearly had some issues accepting my own situation. So that's something else I've really embraced in, you know, in the last, I guess, 10 years. Like I'm 27 now. So when, yeah, you know, this is even back when I was mid-teens. And when you were in high school, you just want to be part of everything else that like everyone else is. Go to all the parties. Lead me into my next question is that you studied psychology at Monash Uni. So you went to uni. What was that like going to uni? Because I went to uni as well. But what was that like for you? having your CP and how did you manage the uni life and studying all that sort of thing? It was challenging at that time in my life. Like I hadn't really embraced disability pride or anything yet. So I was still very much in the frame of mind of, oh, like we have to climb stairs to get to this classroom. Like, okay, I guess that means I'm going to be late to that class because like it's going to take me longer. Like I remember one time being invited through uni to present a conference and the venue was completely inaccessible and we were just expected to walk everywhere and my spasms were particularly bad and I didn't say anything to anyone like small thing but like they didn't have sliced bread at the kitchen area and I wanted to make toast but I couldn't slice the bread myself because I just kind of struggle with that and thankfully I had a friend who was like here Laura like of course I'll slice the bread for you but she was like I can't believe they didn't consider your access needs or like make sure that you had any accommodations. And I was like, oh no, it's not their fault. I didn't speak up about it. So I think for me, uni was a bit of a pattern of not speaking up about it and not thinking, like I knew that there was a disability liaison officer or like an access and support unit at Monash. 
but I never really accessed it. And that's something that in hindsight, I really regret because I think it would have helped me a lot at times when I was spasming really badly. And maybe I know that like I would have done better on my assignments if I had have just been like, no, I need an extension. I just need to like sleep off these spasms and then I can come back to assignments with like a clear mind, I guess. Yeah, we've had similar experience. I had the same thing. So I was at uni and used the disability services office. But I even look back and I go, I probably didn't take advantage of say note taking services. Being able to employ someone, they could have easily got it. They can get another student. You know, they would pay them a little bit of money to take some notes for me or use their notes as well. And they'd be aware, aware of it. Now, I think that part of that too, it's like, well, no, I just want to be like everyone else. Everyone else has to sit there and take notes. But I always be like so tired because I'd be sitting at uni all day. I'd have three classes back to back. And then by the yes. third one, I'd be half asleep. And I'm like, well, no, I've got to keep up because that's what everyone else is like. And I just want to be like everyone else. So you studied psychology? I did, yeah. And like you said, at this point, you hadn't really embraced your disability. But what drew you to that field at that point in your life? Why did you to go head towards psychology? Yeah. So as I mentioned, like I have psychosocial disabilities. So I had a bit of an understanding of at least say like depression and anxiety, which I've struggled with myself. And I was really interested in the application of science in helping me deal with those things, but not even just helping me being able to, similar to what drives me in like disability advocacy and the work that I'm doing now, being able to use my lived experience to help other people. And I think going into that profession, knowing that I could bring empathy in the true sense of the word to the people that I was interacting with, because even though all experiences of mental illness are different in much the same way that all manifestations of cerebral palsy are different, there was a sense of camaraderie or shared understanding that I would be able to bring. So I guess that was what drew me to that field initially. And I guess I've always been torn between like the two parts of myself really like the part of me that is drawn towards using my experience of psychosocial disability in my career and in other facets of my life and then now the part of me that is drawn towards using my lived experience of CP or physical disability but I guess doing things like this speaking on this podcast or just embracing my disability and my access needs allows me to do both Because, you know, I have certain access needs that might be as a consequence of anxiety, like might check in if I was going to a meeting or something, I'd want to know precisely where it was. And yes, that helps in a physical sense, but it helps in a mental sense too. I love it. Now that you, in the recent years that you've embraced your disability and we've touched on it many times already, do you think that has influenced your path in the field as well? Yes, definitely. Every time like we're talking about having similar experiences, like you talking about your experiences at uni, like I've been grinning so much because it's like, oh, you get it. It's really affirming. So thank you for that. But it has very much influenced the decisions that I've made career-wise in the sense that particularly like I'm a content writer of plain and easy English, like two forms of writing that particularly take into consideration varying levels of literacy and the accessibility needs of the audience. And I only learned how to write in plain and easy English once I started working in the disability space. And I love that form of writing. Like I just love the idea that words can be used and if we use them with intention can be used to 
make a space and an experience as accessible and inclusive as possible for everyone. So I know for me, I have deliberately sought out either jobs in the not-for-profit sector with disability organizations or jobs with other organizations that allow me to work with disabled people. I should clarify, I say disabled people because identity first language is my personal preference, but everyone else is, of course, entitled to their own preference. And I fully respect that as well. That's a perfect lead into my next question then. Just around language, like what's important to you? You just mentioned identity first, but I just want you to sort of expand on that. Like how important is language to you and what does it involve? Like where do you think we are at as a general public and society with disability language and everything that's involved with that? Definitely. We are making progress in the sense that a lot of people now understand that the R word is a slur and you should never say it. I think there is still a ways to go. Like personally, I've been called various slurs or names as a consequence of my gait, the way that I walk, and that has been quite hurtful. And I think maybe people just don't understand the impact that those words can have, particularly if to the people saying it, it's just a joke. Sometimes there can be a lack of understanding that for what one person is a joke might not be received as a joke, and it's not okay to say that. Bringing it back to that idea of identity first and person first, it isn't always will be an individual choice, but there has been, at least in my understanding, a bit of a shift away from person first language because, at least for me, the way I look at it, my disability isn't like an accessory. I'm a person with a cat, but the cat is not part of me as much as I love Ali, love him to bits. But whereas my cerebral palsy is an inextricable part of me. And so making that deliberate choice and choosing to use identity first language, for me at least, is a way of saying, signifying to myself and to the world that this is who I am and I'm not apologizing for it. And I'm proud of it, irrespective of what you think. Having said that, yeah, language is ever evolving and I'm always willing to respect and embrace other people's individual choices. Absolutely. I nearly said Laura's the best guest we've had, but let's not say that on the pod because <laughs> we don't want to upset some people. Everyone's great. Everyone's been a great guest. You're off the record. You're probably pushing for number one thus far, but let's not say that publicly. <laughs> but I know it in my heart. Yeah, you do. We all know. Everyone knows it. We could talk for ages, but I said we seem to relate on a lot of things and we could have a real solve the world problem session. But it's been, as I said, been amazing so far. So you're right into the mental health sector as well as disability. Where do you think we're at with how we manage mental health and disability? So like for people with, say, CP, like for me, I was a patient at the children's hospital my whole childhood. It was amazing. Children's hospital, great. They're the best. It is what it is. But I think when I was there, it was all about we'll get the doctors and professors did their best they could, the physios, but we'll get you physically, we'll do all these things to you physically, all these operations, we'll cut you open, we'll do all this stuff, pins and plates, and we'll fix you, like we'll do all these things physically to help you. And that's all great stuff. And it helped me a lot with my quality of life. But there was not a lot of emphasis on what that did, how that affected me mentally. There wasn't like a check in and go, Hey, like we've just cut you open and you've been in a lot of pain for a long time. How's your head going? Like how are your emotions and how are you psychologically and how's your family going psychologically? Where do you think we're at now? I've been out of this, obviously that pediatric space and for a long time. What was your experience with that? 
So my experience was very much similar to yours, again, that my mental health and my physical disability, I guess my psychosocial and my physical disabilities were always tackled individually. When I was treated for my CP, like when I got AFOs or saw my physio or whatever, it was kind of like, yeah, okay, we're going to focus on your legs now. We're going to focus on your muscles. Or if I was seeing a psych, like I saw a psych quite regularly for a long time. I don't think any of them ever asked about my cerebral palsy. And I didn't think to bring it up because I was just like, yeah, this is just my life. But in retrospect, it really would have helped me unpack a lot of that internal and external ableism because we are not unidimensional. Like we as people with cerebral palsy, but we are broader we, like humans everywhere. We have both physical bodies and mental experiences. And there's a strong correlation as we can all attest to those. So I think for me, having experience of those being viewed separately made it really, really hard for me to really pinpoint the impacts that ableism was having on me. It's only again in the last few years that I have actually started talking to my psychologist and being like, oh yeah, this person said this thing to me and I was upset about it. And I realized I was upset because it was ableist. Whereas previously I would have just dismissed how I was feeling and been like, oh, you know, I'm probably just reading into it. Like what they said, wasn't that bad. Like now I can actually go, no, that was someone dismissing, mocking, minimizing my disability, which is to say dismissing, mocking, minimizing a part of me. So I think it has been very much, I've had to be the one saying, hey, these two things are interrelated. Let's treat them that way. Yes, 100%. It wasn't acknowledged when we were younger, some of this stuff. And how important do you think it is now to help the next generation or younger generation, like teenagers now or younger than that now? What can we do to tackle some of these issues now and couple them together or treat them as one and what could we do to help the younger generation do you think at least in my view everyone who is in the life of someone with cp in however way big or small has an integral role to play here in the sense that if you're a physio don't just be like hey i'm going to be bending your leg now or we're going to be doing these five stretches you have a unique opportunity to check in and see how that young person is doing. Let them know that they can get mental health support and that it's okay for them to do that. You as a physio, as a pediatrician, as an OT, has that power and that potential to change a young person's life by acknowledging that other part of them. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It can just be a conversation. It can just be, hey, have you heard of Headspace? Hey, have you heard of Reach Out? Have you heard of Beyond Blue? Just acknowledging those things. And then on the other hand, I guess it could be like if you're a teacher of a disabled young person, or if you're like, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, like a counselor or a psychologist checking in and being like, Hey, you know, like maybe I see on your notes that you have CP or whatever and checking in if they want to talk about that, particularly as a mental health professional, but then taking the lead of the young person, because, you know, I know when I was younger, I wouldn't have wanted to talk about that. But also, I guess I didn't really have the language. Like, I wouldn't have understood what disability pride meant. I wouldn't have even been able to fathom the idea that one day I would feel proud. But just, I guess, meeting young people with CP or with whatever disability where they're at and holding space for that can be really, really important. 
Is there anything last thing you want to say to wrap up? Any super philosophical, awesome statements? You've made plenty of them already, but anything to sort of close it out? Otherwise, I think we've nailed it otherwise. First of all, thank you, Ollie. Thank you for being a great host. Thank you for holding space for me in this conversation. It's been really affirming for me to be able to chat to you about this. And I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. It's been awesome. You've been listening to Extraordinary, a podcast where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. This podcast is brought to you by Independence Australia. Independence Australia is a social enterprise providing choices and services to people living with a disability. To find out more about what we do, visit independenceaustralia.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Extraordinary, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Oliver Hunter, and we'll be back next episode with another extraordinary conversation. Extraordinary.